Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 655. Well, this Sunday, the 29th of March, 2015. God, it's almost April already? Jeez. Uh, anyway, Walking and Talking Dead season finale already. Uh, it's very hard for me to wrap my mind around that. It feels like we just came back. But anyway, uh, the season finale, Melissa McBride will be on Talking Dead, Norman Reedus, Scott Gimple, a surprise cast member who I don't know who it is yet. Uh, I will watch the episode on Sunday, and I'm uh, just sort of mentally preparing, because it's probably going to be all f in the A, <laughs> and then <laughs> you're going to need counseling. Who's going to counsel me? Who am I supposed to? Am I supposed to look in the mirror and be like, it's okay, Chris Hardwick, and then I have to start referring to myself in the third person and be a weirdo? I guess I'm not above that. Uh, also, uh, yeah, I don't know, At Midnight, Fun Comfortable Tour? Yeah, enough about promoting me. Let's go to the Nerdist Community Corkboard. Steven Zamina has a Kickstarter to help fund his children's book. He wants to write a book about zombie bugs called Don't Let the Dead Bugs Bite. It'll be an illustrated book for ages 4 to 10. Go to Kickstarter and search Don't Let the Dead Bugs Bite for more info. Ted Griswold and Chris Valdez are directing a documentary film entitled Olancho, which is about a group of musicians in Honduras, which is... Um, uh, basically a country where there's a lot of violence at the moment and these musicians in the documentary make and play music for the drug cartels there so go to olanchomovie.com to read more about it, see clips donate to help their funding uh, it's a really interesting story and also, this is big news the Nerdist Empire now includes a school of improv and sketch comedy. Should I not have said it like that? Because I think that probably makes it sound a little hokey. And it's not hokey. Um, it's actually something that uh, we've been working on for quite a while. Uh, Ptolemy Slocum, is, uh, who is a guy you would recognize from various television and, and commercials. Uh, and he's a phenomenal improv sketch teacher. Uh, he's assembled a team of folks over at Nerdist, um, uh, over at uh, Meltdown. We had all this space, and once the Nerdist showroom got up and running for a few years, I thought, well, we should probably, I mean, let's utilize this space and help, uh, let's build the community from within and put the people in the audience, let's start seeing if we can get them up on the stage. So uh, Ptolemy has put together a wonderful curriculum, and uh, the Nerdist School is in session. All right. We'd like to invite listeners to check out some free comedy as part of the official grand opening of the Nerdist School stage on March 28th, which is the, the day after this podcast goes up from noon to midnight. 12 hours of improv shows, food trucks, after party. Check out Nerdist.com slash school for more info. Uh, come take some improv classes, uh, dip your toe in some comedy waters. Why don't you? This episode of the podcast is Cal Penn who apparently we had met many years ago, and Cal remembered this, and uh, holy shit, Cal Penn is so smart. He's, 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 he's smarter than you and me, I think. Uh, but he essentially left acting to go work in politics for a while, and uh, he is a fascinating guy, and is now back on a show called Battle Creek, which is uh, a Vince Gilligan joint. Sundays on CBS at 10 p.m. And The Big Picture with Cal Penn premiering on Nat Geo this upcoming Monday at 9 p.m. But I hope Cal does a ton more stuff and maybe he, maybe we can get him to start a podcast or something because uh, he's a super interesting guy and this was, uh, this was a great chat. Totally a little different than some of the other, the other episodes, so I uh, hope you enjoy it. Now let's start the Nerdist Podcast number 655 with Cal Penn. Can I start that thing? Now entering... Nerdist.com
We suffer from uh, people having jobs that are not in Burbank. Thank you for coming to Burbank. Of course. This, in, Thank you for having me. Normally, we would have been able to do this set at Midnight Studios in Hollywood, but I had to shoot here all day for something. So no thank problem. you. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, sure. So where you guys usually do it? We usually do it there, yeah. Okay, we do we it. do it there in a room that is the least hospitable room for recording audio. <laughs> really? The floors are concrete. The walls are brick. There's oh, windows. Someone's phone, I think. Someone's phone? Mine? Should yep. I be it? It, it was yours. I will How? Is that? Man, how's that's that? better. How? Thank you. Why? What? God, I'm such an amateur. Why would you? God, <laughs> I was trying to sabotage it. Can I grab one of these? Yes, have, yes please. Thank you. Um, so anyway, welcome to our nurse Thank you. in Burbank. Uh, you are, wh- what are you, how long have you been back? At, I didn't, I need some timeline stuff because yeah. all I, all I know is that for a long time, cause I was a huge house fan yeah. and then you're gone yeah. and then it's like, Cal's going to go work on the Obama administration yeah. and then, but you're not doing that anymore. Right. So I did that for two years. I started, uh, are we recording? Yes. Oh, okay. I, uh, I started, um, I started that in 2007. There was a writer strike. Um, so all the screeners went on strike. I was on a show called House, and yes. we couldn't shoot anything. And uh, Olivia Wilde, um, who was fantastic and brilliant, yes, um, and very, you know, her, her not to go off on a huge tangent, but her, her uh, parents are war correspondents. Um, and so she grew up in Washington, D.C. I actually don't think I knew that at all. A lot of people don't know this. And it's so she she grew up in D.C., I think went to uh, went to boarding school in Massachusetts, if I'm not mistaken. But so her whole life, she was always around, um, you know, when her parents would call from from these crazy places, um, she would hear these stories about what it was like in other parts of the world. So she's incredibly well read. Anyway, um, she invited me to a uh, um, an Obama campaign event. She said, you know, if you want to come, you know, I don't know if you like him or not, but he's. Uh, he's coming to town to sort of meet with um, artists and athletes and basically make a pitch for for them to be surrogates for him. Like every political campaign has surrogates, people that speak on, on behalf of the candidate. Do you want to come? And I said, well, I've read both his books. I really like them, but I'm, I am politically an independent. So I've voted for both parties before, depending on what the election was. And uh, I said, I'd love to come just to check it out, but I'm, I'm certainly not sold. Um, so then I thought, well, if I'm going to this thing, which is clearly going to be a – come help me session. <laughs> Why don't I actually see what he's really like with his donors? So it turned sure. out one of our, one of our writers on house um, knew a guy who was putting together some sort of high dollar uh, campaign breakfast, like, you know, two or $3,000 a plate for a, a breakfast with, with Obama uh, up in Malibu somewhere. And he said, sure, I can get you in there for, for 20 bucks. Cause I know you don't have $3,000. Um, <laughs> you just can't eat any of the food. Just stand in the back. You can hear the speech, watch the interaction. Just don't eat the food. I said, fine. So I drove up to Malibu the, the day before this, um, this, I guess, artist event that he was having. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a stump speech, but he, the president got to the, got to this part in his campaign, in his campaign speech where he was talking about the environment. Um, and he stopped himself and he goes, Hey, I just, I just was curious who I, I noticed there were three Hummers parked outside. Who, who drove a Hummer to a Barack Obama? <laughs> and of course there, you know, all these super wealthy people are just looking at each other embarrassed. Uh, nobody says anything. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait a second, this is like rule number one of, of like my poli sci 101 class. They teach you do not shit where your donors are. <laughs> right. And here is a guy who is down 40 points in the polls, who is clearly just shitting on the donors that drove Hummers to his event. And his point was, and he, he elaborated on this. He, he goes, look, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't mean to call you guys out, but, but basically 
Um, if you have the money for three grand for a breakfast with a guy who's 40 points down in the polls, you have the money to buy an American-made hybrid car, and you can incentivize the technology for, for people so that 10 years from now it will be more affordable. And I just thought, I am so sold right now on this dude, <laughs> especially as a political independent. Like, you're, you're talking about incentivizing technology uh, instead of just talking about government's role in something. And I, I thought, you know, this is pretty cool. So I went to that event the next day also and, and liked what he had to say, and I thought, you know, there's a rider strike anyway. I can go off to Iowa for a weekend just to help them knock on some doors and do some some campaign events. Um, and I was so moved by the fact that the majority of people working on this campaign in Iowa, the first state to have, have a role in the election uh, in the primary process, they were all in their 20s for the most part, um, sleeping on couches, working 18 hours a day for something they really believed in. And I, I thought, you know, I, I, I'm going to do go back to L.A. and wait around for the strike to end. I would love to be part of something like this. So I moved to Des Moines. Um, stayed there for the rest of the campaign and then had the chance to go to 26 other states uh, on behalf of the Obama campaign, working mostly on youth outreach and, and arts outreach. Um, and then uh, and he ends up winning the nomination and winning the presidency. And you get this call saying, can you do what you were doing on the campaign for uh, for the White House? And I'm like, what do you say? Jesus you know, Christ. Yeah. I have stoner movies to make, sir. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, uh, so it was incredible. Go to the White House, right. maybe? Yeah. Uh, and I feel really lucky, dude. Look, to, to have the chance to take a sabbatical like that for two years and work, work in D.C., um, on a whole range of issues and then to be able to come back to a show like how I met your mother or a ton of other things that they've have been blessed with being able to do since I've moved back to, to my first love, which is, which is performing. I, I can, awesome. I mean, I honestly, you know, you know, whatever someone's political beliefs are aside, I think they would have to respect the fact that you walked away from a show that was not going anywhere. Yeah. To basically, like, in the entertainment business, I mean, you know, obviously, I think most people would want to believe that they are the type of person that, you know, like, oh, I would leave a cushy job for something that I really believed in. I don't know if most people would actually do that. So that's kind of a, that's kind of a, an amazing, that's a, that is a leap of faith and passion on your part. I feel like a lot of people would do it. I, I just feel like it's one of those things, especially in, you know, in the arts or, or athletics or, or um, any of these jobs that when we were kids, you're told this is crazy if you actually want to do this. I think we already have that thing in us where we think, um, you know, you don't want to live your life with any regrets. If you were risk averse, you probably wouldn't try to be an actor or a filmmaker sure. or a producer or something, right? You, you would, you're an idiot really to go into a profession. Uh, but then at this, by the same token, I think, I think I got a lot of undue attention, frankly, by going off and doing that because there are Hundreds of people, if not thousands, that are doing the same exact thing that I was doing, right? Except they are lawyers or doctors, sure. pediatricians, academics, taking a leave of absence from their private sector careers and diving into to public service for a year at this point, what, six years? Uh, and then they go back to what they were doing before. And, and this is without regard. I mean, I think it's probably disproportionate in this administration because the president was an outsider to his own party when he got elected. Um, but you've got folks like Ben Stein. I mean, Stein was a, a speechwriter for Nixon and Reagan, I think, if I'm not mistaken, and, yeah. and is, you know, hilarious comedian, um, brilliant, you know, brilliant conservative uh, guy. I disagree with him politically, but, but sure. what, a, what a cool story, you know? Um, so I think those stories are out there. It's just, uh, they, they don't get told a lot because it's not as salacious as an actor going off and doing it. So let's talk about that for a second. And then we can talk about how, uh, about Washington and then talk about what you're doing now. But I think, I, it was it's it's refreshing to hear you say that to say hey you know Ben Stein's a you know funny guy and a brilliant guy I don't agree with his opinions yeah. but I still think why do you think it is that in our culture now we there, like there are not conversations happening anymore like the, people do not converse like yeah. there's no polite discourse anymore right. it's you know 
you believe this? Well, fuck you. Yeah. You're worse than Hitler. Like, right. what? How do we get there already? Like, why is it that people are so threatened, or 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 or, or that they that we can't just have conversations uh, anymore? Like that we can't just uh, have. Hey, I believe this, and you believe this, and we don't agree. But you know what? Uh, we don't have to hate each other. Well, I think I think it's because it makes such fantastic television. Right. Like you could yelling and screaming at people makes it sells much better ad space. But I just mean on social media. I just mean on Twitter. I, think, I mean, I think we, we're we're unfortunately, you know, and and I do think there's a generational thing in a way. I think that you know, cable news. Thankfully, I would I would imagine very few of your your listeners are getting their news from cable news. Right. right? It's mostly online. It's mostly even things like BuzzFeed, oddly, that right. we even hear about. Certain or The Daily or, Show. Or The Daily Show, right. And The Daily Show, I love Jon Stewart. Um, I love that sense of humor. You know, he, he vacillates, I think, between cynicism and optimism in his type of humor, which is sometimes helpful if you're actually learning about the process. <laughs> right. Sometimes way less than helpful, but very funny. Right. Um, but I love that that's, a, you know, a way that people are, are absorbing information. But then you've got, you know, you have a lot of people that go on to like BBC or the New York Times and, and try and get, um, you know, a, a little more of a balanced perspective than, than something like Fox or MSNBC or CNN. Um, just because that, that tends to skew older and it tends to be people yelling at each other because it makes such good TV. But that's not really the reality. Well, I'll give you an example. We, um, on, the, on the Obama, on both Obama campaigns, actually, uh, Young voters, if you reached out to them with negative ads or ads that basically are, you know, comparing your opponent to somebody horrible like Hitler, uh, they tend to tune out because they know that that's so far removed from reality. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, if you're trying to have an eloquent conversation with them about things that matter, they're actually willing to have those those conversations. And the the biggest kind of – I guess the biggest realization of that was the first couple of events that I was doing for the campaign. I was really hesitant thinking to myself, okay, we're doing a rally for college students and I'm supposed to talk about the Obama campaign. Am I just going to get a hundred questions about weed and the Harold and Kumar movies? <laughs> because, because when I was in college, if some douchey actor came to my campus to talk about politics and I liked their movies, I would probably just ask them about the movies. Like if uh, Dana Carvey came to your college yeah. and was like, let's talk about healthcare. Yeah, right. Like, I would probably laugh at him and then ask him about his movies. Um, and instead, what what was happening on in these, literally these hundreds of campuses that we went to um, was... Uh, they you know they would listen to the stump speech, but then they would ask questions about policy. And you had these college students and young people who weren't in college asking things about you know uh, a parent who lost their job or their cousins who were in Iraq or Afghanistan and and, uh, and the economy and the cost of education. And it really floored me because if you watch television and and look at politics through that lens, you know people on TV are asking questions like, will young people vote? Do they care? Does the Facebook generation have an opinion? Right. You, they are so far removed. <laughs> Rather than just asking them if exactly. they have an opinion. <laughs> and even the pollsters are, you know, the way that political polling works, traditionally they call landlines, which very few people under the age of 35 have. Right. Um, and so they're getting skewed perspectives on that to begin with. So um, that's a really long-winded way of saying, no, I, it's- I think that the TV narrative is very different than the reality of, you know, you grab a beer with a buddy of yours who has a different opinion on something, chances are, even after the seventh beer, you're not going to be screaming at each other. You're, right. You're, you might, like, hug it out be like, I totally disagree with you, man. But I, does that show you what a lightweight I am that seven beers will make me cry? <laughs> well, I just think, I just, you know, what I what I see a lot of on Twitter, I think, is uh, is a very, 
it's 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 emotionally it's a, an emotionally disposable form of 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 a social media in the yeah. sense that you can fire something off in an, in a moment like it's basically a snapshot of whatever emotion you were feeling in that moment yeah and so if someone sees something and they immediately like oh, fuck that guy they'll just go right fuck that guy tweet yeah, absolutely you know and without without actually it i feel like twitter isn't necessarily a conversation starter right per se and so where can people I mean, I would love to. I have this idea that I would love to every once in a while do a, an episode of this podcast that's like polite discourse, where yeah. two people of opposing views come on, and the rule is they cannot they cannot get angry at each other. Yeah. Like they have to. They can be passionate, but ultimately they have to respect uh, the other person's a human being yeah. and share ideas, even if they don't agree. Right. I, I mean, I think that's that's great, and you. I think you're you're absolutely right that. The whole Twitter thing is it feels fantastic to yell at somebody. <laughs> and we also, I think, just because of everything from technology to how quickly even how quickly the private sector works, right? You you have a job in, in a private company, and if you don't do your job, you're fired. Right. Our government by nature and by the way that it was set up is designed to be slow. So there are three branches. They're designed to, you know, slow things down so that a dictatorship is much less likely. But the byproduct of that means that if you're guy or gal is elected and things move slower than you were promised, it's very frustrating, but it's frustrating on purpose, right? I mean, there, there's a reason why there's no magic wand in, in politics. And, right. Uh, there was a pure, I think it was Pew Research uh, five or six years ago, did this study of people under 30, you know, something like less than 10% of them knew what a Senate filibuster was. Uh, so essentially less than 10% of young Americans knew that you need 60 votes nowadays to pass a bill in the Senate. Um, and so if you look at you know, Democrats, Republicans, independents, it's very hard to get that collection together if people are going to try and cop block a bill. That's because of these steep decline in episodes of Schoolhouse Rock. Right. I you, think we it, need to bring Schoolhouse joke, Rock. You joke, but it's true. The, the <laughs> my, generation knows a, my, my generation knows a bill. Yes. We know how a law is made because yes. of that fucking song. Right. Um, <laughs> and so my, my point is that I don't think it's always bad that we yell and scream on Twitter because it does feel fantastic. I think there is an equation uh, that I'm still trying to figure out, a point at which that Twitter advocacy um, can translate into, you know, members of Congress voting a certain way or, you know, a political administration being swayed in a particular way. I think there's evidence of that in some of the successes and failures of the last six years. You know, I'm incredibly biased, obviously, because I, I, I know this presidency intimately. Um, but things like, you know, the president doubled the Pell Grant uh, and repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And those are two examples of things that young people will really had a very active stake in, both young Republicans yeah. and Democrats. Um, so they both were, uh, you know, really engaged on we want college to be more affordable. Young Republicans in particular, right? There's this – the Republican Party in general doesn't believe that um, the role of government is to fund public education. It's just a, a fiscal disagreement, right? They believe the private sector has a better role to play in that. The Democrats tend to disagree. But with something like the Pell Grant, which is – I think it's now $5,500 for college um, – were it not for both young Republicans and young Democrats coming together to say this is something that we want done, it probably wouldn't have – that grant would not have been doubled that way. Um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell is a fantastic example. I mean if you're under 40, you view that issue as a human rights issue or a national security issue. If you're old, um, both Democrats and Republicans, the average age of the Senate is 65. So if you're an old senator 
um, you think it's just an LGBT issue and that's it. And what the heck's the problem? And why do we need to repeal this thing so quickly? Right. So it's a huge disconnect. But young Republicans and young Democrats came around and, and really pushed really hard. So even though it took a couple of years um, into the Obama presidency, it got done for that reason. So my point is um, that kind of Twitter advocacy, if you're, you know, telling someone to, to fuck off is is not, uh, a, you know, a good way of changing their mind. <laughs> Um, but if you if you target people on on Twitter, particularly members of Congress, in a respectful way in mass, um, that that actually makes uh, enough of a difference sometimes to sway some votes. I'll tell you a quick anecdote. Sure, I feel like please. I'm talking to no, no, please talk, talk, talk. There was a uh, there was a, a a session on Capitol Hill that I went to um, when I was working at the White House, and I just my only role there was to to present um, some information on the president's youth strategy, uh, and it just so happened I think it was all. Uh, House Democratic chiefs of staff had invited us to speak at this thing. And uh, and after my session, there was a session that somebody was doing on social media. And I just stopped and st- you know, stood in the back and, and watched. And I was so floored. This woman interrupted the speaker. Uh, and I can't remember who the member of Congress was, but she, she was the chief of staff to this member and raises her hand. And the guy's talking about effective uses of Twitter in the political world and how to reach out to young people. And she, she raises her hand. She goes, excuse me, you know, the congressman has 4,400 followers on Twitter, <laughs> so we're pretty sure that we're doing a good job at reaching out to our constituents, and I lost my shit. I was like, dude, 4,400 as a member of Congress? Half of them are fake. Yeah. The other half are trolling you. Yeah. They may not even be in your district. I was so floored. So there's an arrogance, I think, to these older friends of ours <laughs> in these positions of power who don't understand this type of technology. So so while the FUs targeted at them are not helpful, um, you know, if they only have 4,400 followers, you get seven or 800 of the people on your campus to tweet something respectful about an issue that you care about. And it actually trends more than you would think. Just from seven or eight hundred people. Well, you know? it's not. It's it's probably not a surprise that the word senator is from a Latin word that means old man. Is that true? Hundred percent true. Senex. Wow. Senex means old. Wow. Means old man. And so senators, like you know, Roman senators yeah. were the the old wise men. Uh, and so it it does. It literally means it, when you say senators, you really mean old. You know, old men. I knew taking French was a waste of time. It would never be beneficial. <laughs> no, believe me, taking Latin was almost a waste of time. But that, that was my language for four yeah. years. So it, it's like I, it's it, it, Latin is good for factoids. You know, yeah, yeah. French is yeah. good for communicating. In another way, no one speaks Latin. It's a dead language, That's and, true. It was, and people don't even really know exactly how it was spoken. So you just, it's only for factoids. Like, oh, well, you know, right, a senator right. is it? Like that's that's about as helpful as that. Yeah, gets. but for as dorky as I am, and for what you do here, that's fantastic to know. You know? <laughs> It's helpful for the SATs, but uh, but other than that, how much power does the president legitimately have? Because I imagine that you know, like you you know, like a kid starts to grow up. I want to be president someday, and then I'm sure the process isn't exactly the way you think it's going to be, and I'm sure that you can't necessarily, like you said, wave a magic wand. You know, so but in our government, obviously, because the president. Being a single guy, being a guy, yeah. like not a single guy, but a, but a single human being, you know, he gets the, you know, praise, he gets shit, he gets, you know, I hate you, this is, you know, oh, you're the best. But how much is he actually responsible for? How much power does the president really have in this country? Um, probably less than you would think in some respects and more than you would think in others. And I realize that sounds like a douchey political answer to give you, but um, 
I, I think the, the reason for that is, you know, there are, if you look at the executive actions the president's taking right now on a certain number of issues, you know, four years ago or even three years ago, he would have said that's not action that he wants to take because he still has faith in the larger political process. So in the role of Congress. But then if you've got a Congress and frankly, to be fair, both parties have done no huge favors necessarily for for parts of his agenda. Um, and so if they refuse to do what they've been elected to do, then there, there's a point after which even though politically it may not be the, the, the thing that's going to win you the most polling points, if your job is to protect and defend the country um, or secure borders or, or what have you, you're going to have to take certain steps to do what you need to do. And so what you're seeing right now is, you know, Congress debating whether uh, certain things, which I believe are constitutional, whether they're constitutional or not, those arguments on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, might not actually be about whether something's constitutional, a lot of times it's sort of a pissing contest, sort of like Hollywood, you know? Right, right, right. They'll give you one answer for why a movie is doing a certain way or why a casting decision was made. <laughs> and in reality, it's because, you know, some executive's niece moved into town. Or right, right, You never right, know. Right, right, right. Um, and it's a horrible comparison to, to compare mean, but, our but, world of make-believe to... <laughs> but, but, you know, so, so it depends on the it depends on the, the type of power. The One of the biggest, I think, uh, uses of... of of executive branch power that's outside of even the system is the, the bully pulpit, right? So being able to um, use the office of the president to advocate for something that then has a domino effect. So uh, marriage equality is one example of this. When the president came out in favor of marriage equality after quote unquote evolving over several years before that, right. um, you know, cynics obviously said, well, he just had to do this politically, but really he didn't have to do anything politically. He may have, I, I don't know, the intimate answer to whether he legitimately evolved or whether that was a thought he had the whole time and just had to say that he didn't necessarily believe in marriage equality. But to me, that's almost irrelevant because when he did come out in favor of marriage equality, now you've got, what, 33 states that have followed the president just saying he believes that every American should marry the person they love. Right. And then all of a sudden, whether it's judges or the electorate um, in all of these different states, you've, you've got the freedom to marry whoever you love. Um, there's a power to the presidency and the office of the presidency that, that does it. That's probably a large example, but there's a fantastic program that he's working on now called My Brother's Keeper um, that focuses on uh, young African-American men um, and providing role models and, and uh, mentorship programs. Um, some of the some of the statements the president's made about programs like this and others include, you know, uh, a focus on uh, on everything from culture to finance. So some of the statements that, that he's made, you know, saying – uh, to many of our communities of color that we need to do a better job as men of color um, reaching out to our own communities, being more responsible, being there when we have kids. I mean, those are statements who, you know, that if you had a president who didn't look like Obama making statements like that, you know, you might be accused of racism in, in, in some cases. And the president knows that, and he's making those statements because he, he believes that that's a holistic part of tackling this really complex problem. But imagine, like, we've never had a president who looks like this, who's had the, the opportunity to say and invest in these types of things. And again, that's not a, you know, it's, it's, it's too feel-goody of a story to be on cable news. Um, but that impact, I think, is, is going to affect generations to come, and it'll hopefully have a really good positive effect on things. Are we too, do you think as a culture we're too um, obsessed with the idea of partisanship, where it's just like, because I feel like, you know, a lot of people, Democrat, Republican, Independent, Libertarian, or whatever, uh, people will just go, well, I'm this, and fuck you if you're not this. Yeah. And without, like, how many people do you think actually really understand everything about their about their platform or it's just like, why well, is want to be part of a group? So we're us and you're them and fuck you. And, you know, 
I think both parties try to make it that way as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, if you absolutely, if you can be reductionist and convince people that the other side is crazy, then you're doing a fantastic job at at conquering and dividing. <laughs> but the reality, I think, is much different. Every single person cares about putting food on the table and a roof over your head, and sure. And you know, uh, we can have civil dis- disagreements about about certain issues. But I, I think the two party system is. Almost purposely designed. Look at the head. The head of the is it still Debbie Wasserman Schultz um, on the DNC? Uh, but but if you look at the head of the DNC, the head of the RNC, you know they make fairly salacious arguments about the other side, right? Like really glaring things, almost suggesting that they don't care about America, <laughs> which I find silly on both sides. I find it silly when the Republicans, you know, say that the president hates America or whatever Giuliani said recently. That was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and I also roll my eyes when Democrats say the same thing about Republicans. I mean, there's a point at which you can, I think, agree that if somebody's in elected office, the vast majority of them, uh, you know, they might we might disagree with them, but they they have some uh, loyalty to their state or their district or the United States, and we shouldn't call them out on something like that. And there are, you know, examples where where you've just got awful politicians saying awful things, but. Um, what was the, what was your question? I totally went off on a tangent. I knew no, it, no, no. It was about partisanship. Oh, so yeah. I mean, I think it's pomp and circumstance in a, in a lot of cases. I don't think it's necessarily reality, but I think it's a fabricated reality that allows political parties to to take hold of certain things. It's funny. It just it seems like it's all part of a dance, just to. It, it's almost like a weird, a weird mating ritual or a weird choreographed thing that has to happen. You know that to get attention. And then when people get attention, then they go, oh, well, yeah. they get money because they're getting attention. Oh, that guy, he's on this news program, so he must be worthy of attention, even That's though true. he did something crazy. It doesn't matter. He gets attention. I mean, and again, both sides. Like, I don't, I'm not saying one side or the other being better. I mean, like, or all sides. Like, everyone, everyone does it. Everyone does it. I think it's going to change really rapidly. I think it's already changing rapidly. Um, and our institutional memory is weird when it comes to that, but... If you look at the uptick of young voters in 2008 and 2012, I know a lot of that had to do with the excitement of uh, people like Ron Paul and Barack Obama and, you know, people who kind of were not your typical Democrat or Republican. Um, but I think the political the, the political field is going to be forced to adapt to ch- things like changing technology um, and the fact that you have huge groups of uh, people who historically may not have voted before. Um, who you can reach out to and you can prove that you can reach out to them and, and, and they can hold you responsible for not doing your job or for doing your job poorly. Or you can just uh, direct message your vote to the website. You could, I mean, you could, they, they've got a petition uh, website set up so that you can do exactly that. You Snapchat know, mode. So, this right, guy, this guy, you, this initiative, this initiative. Peace. You never know. You, you, and sometimes it, you know, it's hard to, to, it's hard to like, it's hard to focus on long-term advocacy. Like, uh, you know, uh, there's a North and South Sudan now. It's not a perfect situation, but the reason there's a North and South Sudan is that there were there was something like 30 years plus of youth advocacy on Darfur and on uh, you know anti-genocide in Darfur, and somebody who you know when when there was a North and South Sudan created a couple of years ago, somebody who might have been 40 when that was created, you know might have been 15 or 16 when they started advocating for it. And they might have only done that for two or three years until they went off to college or went off to grad school and then stopped you know focusing on that issue as deeply. But somebody else picked up the ball, and because of that long-term advocacy, they've they, they succeeded at actually doing something, and it pushed, you know, somebody like uh, for the president it was it was a big issue for him, so he nominated Samantha Power at the National Security Council. She's now our ambassador to the UN to work on that issue, and that was one of the reasons that it, it got pushed so well. So 
I think there, there is going to be a point where young people are given credit um, for the incredible work that they've been doing, and I think it's going to force politicians who are going to get increasingly younger as our older friends I don't want to say die off. Uh, retire. <laughs> you know what? It's natural. People are going to die you know, off. We all, we're all going to die. It works. Point, right? You know, humanity sloughs yeah. off the the exterior, yeah. and you know that's. What but I think I just think that's going to change. I think it has to change, and it's a beautiful, amazing thing that it's going to change. Well, I, you know, it's not not just in politics, and and, and for me, politics I, politics stresses me out so much because it's it's a, it's a never ending trench of yeah. when someone says something, it's like well. What does that mean? And what is historically what that means? And what does he normally stand for? And what does that person? Yeah. And they everyone speaks, you know, it's it's like this weird <laughs> I've been referring to it as the apocryphrips, which is basically <laughs> like it's sort of like how, you know, people come at you on Twitter and they go, "Hey, um, I'm going to this is a, this is a, I'm going to reduce this into an entertainment related thing." But it's sure. like if you go to the if you go to like the Walking Dead subreddit, and people go, well, this is what's happening on the show because I know that this person got fired. And so when this person can't, it's like they're wrong and yeah. they don't have the actual information. But people love to speak from a place of yeah. authority because it's very empowering to say like, hey, I have the answer. Yeah. And politics is that times a It's that but about issues that actually affect the people's daily lives. I mean, like their well-being, and so it's so it's so lumpy and gray, and it's not mathematical, and so it's very. How do you wrap your mind a- around it? Because I at least respect. I, I really love that you that you're not like all one party, all another party. It's like no, let's you know I'm independent. Let's look at the let's look at these issues as they affect humanity, yeah. and not and and that it's you know like why don't more people do that? I think I think a lot of people do. I think unfortunately it tends to manifest itself in. Either things like voter apathy, or on the plus side, you know, if you're sick of the political process, a lot of people still participate in things like advocacy. So, you know, if they care about a particular issue, they'll they're they're part of an Amnesty International campaign, or they're part of you know something a local city council that's trying to pass an ordinance that they like or don't like. Um, the I, I'm I'm going to get the quote botched, but there was a meeting that um, that I, I had the chance to put together for the president in Boston um, a couple of years ago. He wanted to meet with. Uh, young Democrats, young Republicans, and young Independents, and he was sitting down with them, and he said something something like, "You know, if you if you're not willing to compromise, and if you are convinced that you're you have to get a hundred percent of what you want in order for you to be successful in public service, then politics will always disappoint you." Sure. Because you're never, and you're never going to agree with somebody 100 percent of the time. Um, and there are things that you might, you know. I mean, I, I worked for the president, and obviously, I there are things in his policy platform that I disagree with. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to, you know, either support somebody or vote for somebody or even go to work for them if the majority of things that you know that I believe tend to skew with one particular person or one particular candidate, then to me that makes sense. And I think that's something that we lose sight of, and it's important to recognize it. A lot of us, particularly around an election time. You know, there, there was a there's this question of viability. A lot of us who, particularly who are independents, I would love to vote for a third party candidate in 2016, especially if the playing field seems to be what it's going to be. There's nobody who excites me right now. Um, I, I hope there will be somebody who excites me, whether they, you know, they decide to run or not. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm probably not going to vote for a candidate who's not viable, meaning somebody who. Isn't, doesn't have the chance to secure enough votes to actually win. Which you is, don't want your vote to you don't want your vote to go uh, you don't want your vote to go theoretically unused. In a way. No, I think I think there's a I think it's important to vote third party because it skews both major political parties in a particular way, mm-hmm. um, either to the right or left depending on who you end up voting for. But um, but what I mean is there are you know 
even if I'm not excited by whoever the two major party candidates tend to be right before the 2016 election, um, I will probably sit there and look at their party platforms and figure out who I agree with the most, knowing that, and I'm not trying to say it's the lesser of two evils, I think that's the more cynical way of looking at it, but understanding that we're a huge, diverse country in which there's no way that most of us are going to find the candidate that we 100% agree uh, with. Yeah, that is the all or, it's the all or nothing you know, trap. It's ridiculous to look at it and say all or nothing. You're, you're going to have to look at it and say, okay, who do I agree with the most on which issue and how can I be helpful because I love my country and I want to be I want it to be better than it is now. So what, so what are resources that you can recommend to people when they are researching candidates or, or trying to understand what the real meat of what a political issue is? What, um, what are some good resources? I think turning off the TV is a fantastic <laughs> idea. <laughs> what? Uh, I know, it's crazy. <laughs> Except for the shows that you and I are on. Yes, yes, you yes. You yes, only yes, watch yes. those. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I think... Um, there are there are resources that unfortunately tend to be a little bit boring if we actually take the time to read them, um, but there are groups like uh, like Rock the Vote, um, which you know is actually nonpartisan. I know they 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 have this reputation of, of uh, skewing to the left a little bit, but they, they've got a bunch of um, around election time they they put together voter guides that are actually pretty substantive and, and do a really good job at dissecting some of the issues and, and platforms of what people believe in. Um, there, there are a bunch of civic. What is it called? It's the civic, the U.S. Civic Youth. Gosh, I'm totally botching the name. Um, Civics for evil. No, no, it's like a really basic. It's essentially a website for high school students, but they do, um, they do voter guides and they do a really good job at it. There's also there's a fantastic group actually called Young Invincibles, which I think is is younginvincibles.org. Sounds like a comic book. Uh, yeah, it does, right? <laughs> they're they're great at issue specific things. So that's so important because, especially, you know, obviously the debacle from a few years ago was like Prop Eight voting no was actually voting yes. Yeah. Like it, it's the, the like sometimes the the language of a of something can be constructed in such a way that it's like ah, we'll trick people yeah. into voting the wrong. You know, <laughs> totally no on purpose. I mean, that, that stuff <laughs> yeah. happens on purpose, and and they. When you see things like that on the ballot, they're definitely, you know, they are put there because different political parties are trying to appeal to your emotional, visceral reaction. So is the most important thing that is actually going to affect your life something like uh, abortion or marriage equality? Most likely not, statistically speaking. I'm not right. trying to disparage people for whom those two are the major issues in your life. But but they're, they're, they're certainly emotional issues, so they tend to draw people out to the polls. But we tend to not look at things like, you know, how do I feel about the way government's spending my money? How do I feel about, you know, uh, intervening in foreign wars, things like that. Oh, we yeah. tend to not look at those things and instead go, you're for or against uh, abortion and marriage equality? I'm going to vote this way. <laughs> Which is a little silly because then it doesn't allow for a conversation in the in the midpoint there. Was Young Invincibles showing up? Younginvincibles.org? They're really good. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to make a statement that I think yeah, is very. Yeah, that youngandmincibles.org. Yeah, it's very obvious to our audience, but it is it is shocking to me that we still have to have this debate about whether or not people should be able to get married. You oh, know, like yeah. it, it's like I, it's it's embarrassing. I feel like it's fucking embarrassing that this is where we're spending. You know, it's like it, it, the world is hard enough. Like let people be together. Yeah. You know, it's like what's the fucking? It doesn't affect you. Yeah, I agree. You know, let them in your dumb club. You totally know, like agree. if people want to get married, let them. Fu- you know, it's like I don't. Or that, or like whether or not we have, we're debating evolution. Like, yeah. it just there are things where I feel like 
I think maybe we're slow, you know, like I, I know that we are moving forward. I, I mean, I definitely, you know, the fact that, like you said, in 33 states, you know, that marriage quality is, but yeah. it's, but sometimes it feels like, are we going backwards a little bit? Oh, I don't disagree. And in <laughs> fact, I always, you know, I, I, I'm, it, it's so irritating to hear people say things like, so I'm not entitled to have an opinion that I disagree with marriage equality. And my, my, I feel like saying my response is like, no, you absolutely have a right to be a huge douchebag if you want to. <laughs> your, your First Amendment right to be an asshole is absolutely protected. That doesn't mean you have to be an asshole. Right. You know what I mean? Like, sure, you can be an asshole. You can use all sorts of offensive language. Well, you're, you're politically correct, blah, blah, blah. No, you can say whatever you want and be a dick if you choose to be a dick. But by the same token, do you really like what is it inside of you that makes you have to be a dick? Well, I mean, knowing that it would piss somebody yeah, people, off. Yeah, a lot of times people will use the, the they'll go, uh, oh, I guess, uh, you know, someone will say something really crazy and then yeah. they get in trouble and then people go, I thought we have free speech in this country. And I go, yeah, we do. He didn't get yeah. arrested. Yeah, right. So he's not in jail. Right. But that doesn't mean there aren't social consequences yes. for saying horrible things. Yes. Like, of course, you know, like that's, there's a difference between, he's not being executed because he said out loud, like, you know, I don't believe in this. Oh, haul him off. Like that. That's not free speech. Yeah, right. Free speech is, you know, like, but there are, you know, there can be consequences, right. you know, like people can say, hey, fuck you. I don't want to hang around you now yeah, because what I you agree. said sucks. And I always think it's so interesting how, how uh, especially our, our, our friends on the right try to suggest that you're trying to squash free speech. If you say that, I remember there was a couple of years ago, it was, um, what was that? There was a show on TLC about uh, Muslim families in Detroit, like in Dearborn, I think. And, uh, and it was, what was it? It was, um. Not Home Depot, the other one. Who's the, the other? Lowe's. Lowe's. So Lowe's and Kayak, if I remember correctly, pulled their ads from that show because some right-wing group uh, was upset that TLC was featuring Muslim Americans instead of Christian ones. Oh, my God. Um, and, and so – and Lowe's and Kayak actually caved and pulled their ads. And so I remember there was a huge we, – we shot a thing for Funny or Die making fun of Lowe's for doing that. But then there was a – you know, there were there – Groups of Americans that I think rightfully were saying, well, we're not going to shop at Lowe's and I'm not going to use Kayak. I'm going to use something else instead. And then the, there were people on the right who were saying, well, you're trying to suppress free speech and we you know, <laughs> we have a right to – yeah, well, this is called the market taking care of douchebags. Right. This is absolutely the market you adjusting can spend, you for, have the And you have the right to spend yeah, your money you, elsewhere. Absolutely. That's capitalism. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just because you're boycotting a product doesn't mean you're somehow a weird socialist. Now, that is actually capitalism. Now, you're not going to go in and purchase fencing from Lowe's and block it off from everyone else. Right. No, exactly. You go that, shop there. That would be awful. That's, you can't but do instead, that. But instead, right. And so I think it's weird how we, we tend to want to just – Put you know if if this is my issue then freedom of speech counts but if you disagree with me then you're trying to cock block freedom. Oh well, you no, know, everyone, everyone, you know, and you, and you find this in comedy too is where where people they will laugh at a variety of things you know because in, inside most comedy things is a seed of something horrible like this is comedy. <laughs> yeah. Comedy is how we deal with totally. It's it's how we don't it's how we don't you know run into traffic and yeah. you know t dig our eyes out of our head. And people have no problem laughing at other things that are sort of making fun of other situations. But when it starts to get too close, someone's like, whoa, hey, fuck that. How yeah, get this guy off television, you know, yeah. or whatever. And it and it's like, you know, you, we kind of have to be comfortable that, you know, it's like you should. I don't know. Don't just get upset about issues that only affect you. But you're right, because it, it, these things do relate to each other. And, and uh, 
And just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't necessarily mean they're a you know they're a bad human. <laughs> they're, being. they're Hitler, right? <laughs> what is uh, what is your what is your actual ethnic background? Where are you from? So my parents moved from India to New Jersey in the late sixties, early seventies. Yeah. Um, and then my brother and I were born in Jersey. Um, so I'm Indian ethnically, uh, American nationally, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and then just yeah, born and raised in Jersey, and, and moved out to California. Um, to go to college and then, you know, uh, moved back to New York a, a couple of years ago. Um, a lot of the work's out here, so I'm obviously here <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, people, it's funny, you go to other states, you know, like New York or Chicago, people go, LA fucking sucks. And then around pilot season, you're like, well, hey, yeah. <laughs> interesting to see you out yeah, here. Right. Yeah, I know, I gotta, you know. Yeah, no, the, work, the work's here, I have, I have no complaints. You and I actually met uh, at UCLA. What? In, in an improv group. When I moved to LA, was this when we were in college? Yes, we you... may have just graduated. We overlapped for a year, I think. Your uh, was it the group that used to perform in Kirkhoff? Yes, all the time. Yeah, with Josh and those guys. I don't. Know. I didn't. I only went a couple times. Oh my god! What was the name of the group? That I can't remember. Oh, it was probably Mixed Nuts or something like that. It might have been. I don't remember. I but, it, but it, that was. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah, you remember that? Mm-hmm. How do you remember that? Because of course I remember. You have a good memory. It was, uh, that was in the 1900s. It was in the 1900s. I think it was also because um, you had you were on a show also, right? You were on I had show just you were started doing... working at MTV in yeah. like 94. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah. So then, oh then my it was, god, yeah. that's crazy. So you did you did uh, did you do improv all the way through, or did you just try it a couple times in college? Like... I did it badly off and on. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I, I think I I definitely did it uh, freshman year at, at UCLA. Um, and then I tended to gravitate actually away from campus because I was really excited by the fact that, you know, the campus is five miles from almost every major studio. Right. And so I kind of thought, okay, I like improv, but instead if I can somehow finagle this into doing student films or short films or, you know, going on auditions in some of these places, then then maybe that's... I don't want to say time better spent because I don't want to disparage the importance of doing. No, but for improv, you, but it was more economical, strategic yes. decision. Yes, yes, to, yes, to yes, do yes, like that. yes. And so, uh, did you ever like what, how, what areas of comedy did you touch along the way? Uh, on campus or, or just off? in general? In, like general, in general. So, yeah. so I had never, you know, my my background in growing up in New Jersey and, and around New York was uh, I went to a performing arts high school in Jersey, one of the few public ones remaining, uh, and it's still there, which is is fantastic. Um, but so most of my training was in theater, uh, either in in Jersey or a lot of our teachers would come from New York, from Atlantic Theater Company and places like that. Uh, and so improv was something that I, I really enjoyed and that I that I wanted to do. Um, comedy, I think it it, it almost seems, um, and I'd be curious your take on this too. It, it almost seems like it was a something that I randomly got involved in, in the sense that when you're 18 and you move to LA and you go out for auditions. The things that sell the best to people eighteen to thirty-five are funny things, <laughs> right? And so you just end up having more auditions for things that are funny than things that aren't, right? And as I'm getting older, I think it's a little more balanced, right? There are shows that you go out for that are that are straight dramas and, and hybrids and, and, and comedies all, um, but so and I'd never been on a TV set before, so I remember doing things like skipping class to be an extra on Boy Meets World, <laughs> like just you know really decisions that at the time seemed fantastic. That is a fantastic, and thing. which I will, yeah, I mean I'll back it up to this day. I learned a ton. I certainly learned more, honestly, being on a on a 
TV set as an extra than I did in any of my film classes. Right. Um, again, not to disparage our no, amazing school, but I think there's the you know, and that's the role of academia. Obviously, you're not you're not there to learn what it's like being on a film set. You're there to learn some of the the production that goes into that, and, sure. and they expect you to piece it together on your own. But I probably took the extreme where I was you know I did it improv classes one quarter and then. You know, essentially took a quarter off to go and and be an, an extra student films. <laughs> I always wanted to do comedy. I always wanted to do stand up. Yeah. Ever since I was a little kid. Yeah. I was. That's awesome. So you knew that's what you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From my first C Martin album, I always knew. That's awesome. That's what I wanted to do, and uh, and it took a long time before. I mean, I did a little bit in college, but then I didn't do it because I started working at MTV, and I and I was very afraid of it for a long time, and it wasn't until. That MTV job ended in like '98, where I was like, "Okay, I think I got to do this now." I actually yeah. started stand up, I think, a little later than I would have preferred. Okay, I didn't actually start doing stand up full time until I was like 27. Okay, and I really kind of wish I had started it. Early. I mean, I st- I did it a little bit in college, but just not not enough to really, you know, like I did it on campus, yeah, in dorms. It's not like I was out on the road at you know seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Yeah, so. but that's still. I mean, to yeah, but to do that to get up in front of people. Yeah, but you're still just performing for other people who get all of your reference points I because you're saying. all in college. Yeah. And it's like you're almost kind of performing for your friends. It's yeah, not yeah, like yeah. you know. I didn't really understand what it was like until I actually went out and did the road. Yeah, sure. You know, much later. I just wasn't. I wasn't prepared. That's terrifying, man. I've I've never done. I mean, I, I guess I did it like once in high school. Similar thing that you're talking about in a safe place, but. It terrifies me. I give you so much props. For <laughs> no, 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 no. Everyone's so good at it. No, no I, no, I don't know about that. But I appreciate that. I mean, it's like I think it's like anything else. Like if you look at a guy who's like a piano tuner and go, "Wow, I don't know if I could ever do that." Like, yeah. well, if you, you know, if you yeah, put in the time, you know, true. if you put in your theoretical ten thousand hours, right. you could probably do it. But is it uh, is comedy? I mean, like, I don't know. Is it? Do you? Would you want to do more performance stuff? I mean, if you ever, you know, would you? Well. Let's talk about The Daily Show for a sec. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, big, big movements in The yeah. Daily Show. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, who, who could follow John? Like, who could be the next person? And I, you know, it, I, I've been kind of thinking, uh, I really like Aisha Tyler. I think she'd yeah. be a great voice. She's an excellent broadcaster, good podcaster, knows how to interview totally. people. Funny, has a good, good point of view. I think she'd be great. Is, it, is that something that you ever thought you would want to to do, like that type of a political? I mean, you have the political well, background. To replace John Stewart, you have the Jesus. political background. You have the comedy background. Would you ever even want to be on the show? I, I first of all, I don't. When I saw that he was leaving the show, my first thought was, is like the show just ha- it must be done. There's nobody. Who They're going to bring Kilmore back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's about time for me to get back out there. <laughs> That was my Craig Kilborn impersonation. <laughs> I know. I, said, I wish there was a camera on this. <laughs> I transformed. Yeah, I yeah, transformed yeah. from uh, one white guy into another white guy. Um, I mean, look, of course, that, that would be a dream job of sorts for somebody like me because you, you actually get to, you get to be funny. You get to do bits, um, especially the field bits that he produces with all his incredible anchors and everyone. Um, and you get to interview world leaders and authors and people like that. That'd be fantastic. Aisha is a fantastic suggestion, too, because she's funny and smart. Yep. Um, brilliant, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if that was ever in the cards, of course, I would love to be considered for something like that. Um, you just have an interesting I, set of... You have a particular set of skills. <laughs> you have an interesting skill set that I think most, you know, most performers don't have. And it must have been strange to come back from Washington... Get back on a film set or on a television set and watch people stressing out about very minor things and be like, you know, this is really not the most important thing in the yeah, world. I, I will say that, and you're the only one who's ever asked that because usually, you know, 
I think understandably everyone wants to know if there's any comparison between DC and, and LA and, and uh, you know, do I think that my acting is somehow stronger because I worked in Washington? No. I mean, I, I purposely try and keep the two worlds separate. Um, but the one thing is what you just asked about, which is that it's really done a great job at, at I think, calming me down before, either before an audition or when you're on a set. <laughs> And, you know, you've got some weird producer executive screaming about something. And I just think to myself, all right, I mean, we're making make-believe here. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> my job. Like, right now, I love the show that I'm on. And the crew and the producers are all great. Nobody's ever yelled or anything like that. Um, but sometimes you have stressful days. You have long days when you're, when you're shooting something. And, and there are definitely times where I sit there and I think, okay, you, you know what? Yeah, okay, you're, you're tired. But your job is to play cops and robbers. Right. I'm on a cop show. And it's literally the, the seven-year-old me, if I told the seven-year-old me, hey, bro, one day you're going to grow up and you're going to get a paycheck for playing cops and robbers. Don't ever have a bad day. By the way, your, 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 your narrative to a seven-year-old is amazing. Well, calling him bro? Calling him yeah. bro, but also, but also, you know, that, that's like a kid's dream to be like, one day I'm going to work at with the president and then I'm going to get to pretend to be a cop like everything that you do is basically what a kid would want to do I feel very lucky I mean it's crazy blessed. it is nuts actually when you put it that way I hadn't thought about it that way do you do you do you foresee yourself you know uh, like how much would you would you want to go into politics would you want to be would you want to be a senator or would you want to be a president or would you want to be you know I don't I don't think so I don't know I mean I I like um I definitely don't think that's that's necessarily something I could do now. Although it's funny, on the way over I'm from New Jersey, I, on the way over here, I, I was reading about how there's a, a federal probe into Senator Menendez. Who right, right, right. I yeah, already, I saw that on the Google page. Yeah, who I already dislike uh, <laughs> being from New Jersey, and I just kind of thought, hmm, wonder if I could take over for that guy. <laughs> just slide right just in. Slide right in. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like. Um, I think there's a there's a point right now where I think par- partially because of the age of politicians, but it's almost like people feel like you certain things are mutually exclusive. And I think Al Franken's probably one of the only people who's balancing both worlds just because he's got a background in comedy. Um, but you know, I think people are so risk averse in, in politics to even do something like I, I mean, if I were on the Senate floor, I would probably end up making a dick joke at some point. You would have to. I would have to, right? Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't, obviously, in a serious <laughs> tone. There is a time to be serious and there's a time to be funny, and I think that's my point. Is um, politicians right now are, are relatively risk averse. Uh, I, I, maybe in ten or fifteen years, um, if that's something I wanted to do, I might consider it. But really, my my first love is performing and it's acting and it's filmmaking. And <laughs> now, my balls may not be as long as the rest right, of you. Right. Um, so I don't know. It's not something I've seriously considered. Um, but it's, it's an option. Like, it's, it's flattering an that option. people think it's an option, and I, I, I would certainly never rule it out, but it's also not something I'm actively thinking about. Uh, do people still scream, Hey, Harold and Kumar, uh, when you're walking down the street? Yeah, and I, it's... Uh, Yes, they scream both names. They do scream both they names scream because both names. that's. The, I know they people scream titles of things. Yes, they love to scream titles of things. Titles of things, uh, both names. They also just will scream Harold right <laughs> many times. Um, and then you have to figure out like, are they wasted enough that if you don't respond, it's not rude, <laughs> or are they totally sober and just showing you love? In which case, yes, of course, come get a high five. Um, I mean, that's that that too was a, what, what a fun experience. So just this kind of like sleeper comedy to like. You it know, was and, crazy, man. I, it, in fact, John Cho just two weeks ago told me that he 
he gets asked if he still works at the White House. <laughs> and I had no idea this was happening to his life. Like, really? I get that question on a daily basis, but you? He's like, yeah, people, it just, it's the amalgam it's of... It's kind of a white castle. The two characters. It, it is, yes, it is. <laughs> it totally is. Um, we, yeah, we made that first movie. <laughs> Whatever yeah. Katie giggles. Yeah. I know. It's a delayed giggle, too. It, I, I think it's tough it to crack her. She's, she's almost unbreakable. Yeah. Uh, we did that first movie in what, 04? 05? Something like that? 04. No, 04. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we thought it was funny. There was such a long audition process for it. I think it was over the course of something like four or five months, and they... You know, they, with you know, this huge movies like that, they're going to audition people in L.A., New York, Chicago, sure. London, Sydney, all over the place. Um, and then they keep whittling it down, and you do your mix and match auditions, and finally they cast John Cho and I. And um, number one, we were just really excited that we actually got along in real life. <laughs> you know, we grabbed uh, we grabbed drinks and dinner one night. Cho actually uh, called me and he's like, "Hey, we're about to play best friends." We should go out one night. I'm like, yes, let's go out. And we were we were so thankful that by the end of the first hour, we're like, this is there's something here. We we actually like each other. This is going to be good, um, which was fun. But then you know, in the course of the movie, it was fantastic. The movie comes out and uh, it tanks at the box office. We went out uh, myself, John Cho, the writers, John Hurwitz, Hayden Schlossberg, and a bunch of the executives went out to a bunch of different theaters in the in the L.A. area opening weekend, and there were. Maybe eight people in one theater. The next one's empty. The next one's got twelve people, and they're all stoned, and that's fantastic. And then the next theater's got one dude by himself in the back sleeping. Then you get excited because there are there are like ten people in one theater, but then you realize they're all in the back row making out, and they're twelve years old, and they don't sure. really care about the movie. And they're right. just there because it's make out time. Right. Um, so we were kind of devastated. The, the first the movie only lasted, I think, two weeks in the theaters. And then we just assumed that was dead. and Until you released the t-shirts that said, I got fingered to Harold and Kumar. Is that true? No, but I just was assuming that God, a bunch I of kids were was... just making Oh, I've heard it. stories like this, trust me. <laughs> Especially now that the movie's ten years older. It's <laughs> so you, crazy! You've got people who are, you know, our age or a little younger than us who yeah. come up to you and go, well, I had my first blah, blah, blah to that movie. And I'm like, oh, oh I don't very, need to know that. I don't very know intimate. That. I had no idea that the, movie, sure. that the movie ostensibly tanked. It tanked, it, it totally tanked. And, and, uh, and that was the thing, the thi- you know, there, there was a component of that also that that I think, I, I can't speak for Cho, we never explicitly talked about this, but but bothered me in the sense that, you know, it was a huge bummer in the sense that the up until that point, there was a lot of attention paid to the movie before it came out because it was the first time that a major studio had cast two lead actors who were neither white nor black. Mm-hmm. And so I certainly felt like there was a lot of pressure. You know, I'd done my job, of course, and so it was out of my control, but I felt like there was a lot of pressure riding on that in, in the sense that, you know... Um, you don't have control over whether the audience sees something. I certainly think that audiences don't care about the ethnicity of characters, and Hollywood's a little bit archaic when it comes to that kind of sure. stuff. But, um, but I was convinced that if we made a good movie, that people would see it um, if they wanted to see a funny movie, and that, that the ethnicity that leads would not hold them back. And so when it tanked at the box office, I thought, wow, is Hollywood right? <laughs> oh, no! Like, like, do people just not want to see anyone who doesn't look like them be funny and to me it was never an ethnic movie it was a movie about two friends on a quest for hamburgers frankly that was it it was just a movie about friendship um, not even about weed really or the burgers just the just the friendship um, and uh, and so there was a good there were you know a good couple of months after the movie came out and did so poorly that I, I was kind of questioning whether this arc, you know the Hollywood's archaic way of doing business whether that really meant something and then the next thing you know 
uh, you know, pe- it comes out on DVD, and people are buying it and gifting it to each other. And you've got college students who are doing watch parties and getting wasted, and and just like this is the movie they love, and it's impossible to walk down the street. And we we kind of called each other and looked around and go, what is happening right now? How are people discovering this movie that we thought was a failure? Um, and it turns out that not only is Hollywood's archaic way of doing business super archaic, but even their marketing is archaic. Because if their marketing was effective, then the movie would have done well in theaters. But instead, it took fans finding it on their own, giving it to each other on their own. Like we Maybe have the so donors much just love. didn't want to leave their homes. Okay, look, I guess that's fair too. <laughs> I mean, the DVD. It's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but they they really gave us so much love, and we love them so much because of it. it. It was only because they came out in droves and and supported our film that we had the chance to do a second one and a third one. And frankly, I don't think you know. I, I certainly don't think I would have had the, the kind of career knock on wood that I've been blessed enough to have if it weren't for these fans that went out and and just got those DVDs. You should make a fourth one. Yeah. That is actually. I I think you should genre flip it. Have it be Harold and Kumar go to the White House, yep. and it's a political thriller, like a Clancy, you know, like like a weird political. There's an assassination attempt. Has 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 John Cho been on on the podcast? Before? No, no. He's. I, I would guarantee you he'd be way into this idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, an adult, you know, like a really yeah. like a, like one of those like a Harrison Ford yeah. style political. I, I am, ga- dude. One of my favorite parts. <laughs> I, w- I played a terrorist on four episodes of Twenty Four. <laughs> yeah, it was by far one of one of pro- 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 easily top five characters I've had a chance to play. Because I got to uh, take a family hostage uh-huh. for four episodes. Now, three things that I'm terrified of in life are uh, handguns, terrorists, and hostage situations. <laughs> and I got I got to be the culprit in all three of those. That helped you deal with your phobia. So it's like you know that's the kind of shit that's fun as an actor. <laughs> I think um, so, yeah. I, I'm interested to hear about. Um, what it's like for non-Caucasian performers, like just yeah. to hear you, just to hear you say, it's like, a, you know, it's the first time two non-white. I'd never actually, I'd never thought about the race part of it either. Yeah. So I hadn't thought of it like, oh yeah, I didn't really. But you know, <laughs> have, at what points have you been in situations where you're like, you know, did you ever see Hollywood Shuffle? No. Robert Townsend. No. It's a fun movie because yeah. the whole thing is that he's a performer and he's an artist. And he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to give in to the way that Hollywood portrays uh, black actors. Uh-huh. And then there, there's another dude in the movie who's totally ready. You know, where it's like these white producers yeah. are like, "Can you pimp it up more? Like, really stick your butt out and yeah. really." And, and and they're basically it's white people trying to get black people to act quote unquote black. And it's yeah. and it's his journey. It's his sort of like. Um, satirical kind of a farce journey through that system and like how he doesn't want to give up his like what he believes in to sell out for that and so at what point because you know it's like Hollywood's very unforgiving culturally to people it's like because I'm sure you know Cho's probably been in there like well you know you could be like white or Korean or Chinese or or Japanese or like any kind of Asian culture and for you it's like any kind of you know Indian Middle Eastern culture so you know is there a certain point where you're like you know I feel like this isn't just this isn't right to go. Yeah. Well, first of all, that movie you mentioned is it a documentary? Because it sounds like it. <laughs> it sounds like Hollywood it Shuffle. It's a fun. Yeah. It's a fun movie. It's, yeah. It's no, I'll 80s. have to check it out. Um, yeah. Oh, it's from the eighties. It's from the eighties. Wow. Yeah. How how things have and haven't changed <laughs> at all. Uh, I think. Look, I think. Um, I think every actor, to be completely fair, every actor deals with their frustrations related to things like typecasting. Right. If you're a six six dude from Iowa. 
you're probably going to go out for a lot of football player parts. Right. And you're probably going to get told when you go out for some auditions that you're too tall. I guess, and but I don't. But I, in general, I don't think really tall people get super marginalized. No, this is yeah. my point. Is yeah. that is that I think for performers of color and and for for women in particular, there are a lot of times where you don't have the luxury of being too tall or too short or right. too fat or too skinny because they know that they either want or don't want quote unquote ethnic actors, right? right? Um, and that's it's deeply frustrating. Um, as I've had the privilege of working over over the last several years, there's also an interesting thing I've noticed, which is the the better projects or the projects that I've been most excited when they've been completed have been the producers and directors who like flipping that idea. So um, David Shore on House, for example, I remember vividly auditioning for, for House back in 06, 05 maybe, um, and uh, you, we walked into the, into the waiting room and it was packed. And there were actors aged 18 to 65, men and women both. And we were all reading the same set of audition oh, sides. That's really interesting. And it was the part of a Mormon doctor. <laughs> and so I was stoked just going in there reading for the part of a Mormon doctor, not realizing that they were casting it not just ethnic blind, but age blind, gender blind. Um, and I asked, once I got cast, I, I sort of casually asked him about that. And he said, no, I, I, I try to do everything that way because I just want to find the best actors for the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't push too much into saying, you know, this is a rarity. Like, usually, my first audition I went on, I, it was for a commercial. And I walked in and the casting director asked me where my turban was. Oh, Jesus and Christ. then I said, I was trying to explain to her that I'm not sick and so I don't wear a turban. And she goes, well, can you go home and put a bed sheet on your head or something? No, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and... Should I hang that. myself with that bitch? <laughs> yeah, yeah really. fucking terrible. <laughs> Can I smother you with it? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to hang so, myself with my non-turban. <laughs> so there are things like that that, you know, I, I've probably got a hundred stories like that, but for every hundred of those stories, there is one beautiful story about somebody like a David Shore or, or a Brian Singer or, uh, you know, Howard Gordon, who, who did 24. Um, and these guys think, you know, I, I don't think it's... It's not like a... It's not a purposeful, calculated decision about imagery in Hollywood. It's a creative decision about how they're going to find actors who are going to be interesting for the stories that they're trying to tell. Right. And that's really refreshing, which is not to say that it's not deeply frustrating when you go out on an audition and somebody says, you know, can you do an accent? And then my response is always, sure, I can do any kind of accent that you want. I'm an actor. <laughs> and they go, you want Southern? Or- <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what we mean. I'm like, no, I know exactly what you mean, but I'm going to make you say it. <laughs> go ahead and say it to my face. <laughs> Which I've done before. <laughs> like, I don't know what you mean. Say, well, what kind of accent do you want? And then Why they don't shuffle. you do it? They then- will do it. What? You joke? Are you fucking kidding me? I am not kidding you. They do it. All the time. Uh, that is um, that is atrocious. It is the the uh, I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly, but what the hell? Who cares? Uh, there was one of the first auditions I was I was uh, supposed to have when I left the White House was for uh, the Denzel movie Flight, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't really know what it was. Um, I uh, have I just broken a code by mentioning exactly what movie I'm about no, to talk no, about? No, 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 no. That's okay to do, right? No, yes. Um, so, and I love Denzel. Uh, Denzel and Tom Hanks are two people whose careers I have admired since I was a little kid. And so I was really excited. And, uh, you know, I, I got the phone call saying, there's this this, this uh, audition you're going to have, you know, later in the week. I'm really excited about it. It's for a Denzel movie. I'll send you more information soon. So I said, okay. And then, uh, you know, a week or two went by and I remembered. I was like, hey, whatever happened to that movie for that, uh, that Denzel movie? And I, I called my manager's office back and they... They said, yeah, they just, you know, they decided uh, that they were going to go in a, a different direction. I was like, well, can I at least audition? I said, no, they, you know, they, they just, you know, they, 
the issue was they already had, had cast a performer of color, so they they knew that they just didn't you know they didn't want another one. Oh like, boy! And I said, well, who did they cast? Oh, Denzel Washington. <laughs> That's your performer of color. So they can only have so one. so you can only have one, and it was one the, one darker person. Totally, and, and I, I don't remember if it was the part of a pilot or somebody else on the plane or what it was, but I just remember being so pissed off that I I like told off the the person in my manager's office. I'm like, call them back. Call them back and tell them that the real first black president had no problem hiring a real brown American dude to work in the real White House. And maybe it's okay if I can fucking play a pilot with Denzel Washington. And, uh, you know, of course, they said, I'm, we, we can't make that phone call. That is a tough <laughs> argument to take the other side of, though. I mean, that is a co- very compelling argument. And I, re- I remember clearly the, the conversation ended with, uh, Cal, you got to remember, you're, you're back in Hollywood now. Uh, and I just thought, again, we are so archaic in this town about the way that we present things. Yeah, now, look, there, you basically went from the West Wing and you came back to Studio 60. Totally, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the, the ages, too. Like, yeah. the decades. I feel like I moved back decades. But I think um, for all of the douchebags like that who exist in this world, I think that there are incredible, cutting-edge, awesome producers, writers, artists. If you look at television, even TV, what's on TV now, five years ago was unfathomable. Like, everything from Girls to the Mindy Project to um, all of the stuff on cable. I mean, these, first of all, incredible women that are hilarious and funny and awesome that are writing and crushing their own shows that five years ago you would have thought would be unheard of. You know, 30 Rock was maybe the only one on TV um, that that had something like that. Um, And then there's, there's of course, diversity with performers of color and things like that, but there's so much diversity of content, too, um, in all these cable shows. And you're seeing worlds and being introduced to characters um, that you never would have before. I mean, you know, I love watching girls. It's not the most racially diverse, but it's there's so much diversity of content and character in those shows that it's so compelling. Um, I love that, man. I just think that the, the TV industry is changing for the better. Um, you know, movies are, are lagging a little bit. We're, we're making a lot of remakes, but I still love yeah. watching movies. And I think it's going to follow suit at some point because younger audiences don't care what characters look like. They, what they care about is... You know, is there a crazy, weird character? Is there yeah, you've got Lannisters and Starks and Targaryens. <laughs> oh, they're all wet. Uh, but um, I do think that the internet has helped kind of... Uh, I don't know if democratize is the right word, but it, it's at least even the playing field because I think people now are more... Um, I think content is a little more king rather than you know, uh, the types of quotas, you know, like I, we're obviously not there yet. We're not, we're not at a place where people don't, you know, but I do think that the, the young generation, because of their exposure to digital culture is seeing, hopefully seeing less and less race, gender, you know, because they just want entertainment because their favorite YouTube stars are, uh, you know, like run the gamut of everyone and everything. And, and hopefully they are kind of blinded to, you know, having to see totally. a person as defined by their face. No, they, they absolutely are, and, and all of the evidence also suggests that they are, right? They're, they're living in, and I would say even we are, are living in a, a relatively post-racial world in that sense, where the types of movies that we see or the characters we identify with are not because of, of gender, ethnicity, race, or even age a lot of times. They're just because we identify with them in a particular way. You yeah. know, people growing up with an incredibly diverse group of friends. I, re- I remember, uh, not to bring DC into this too much, but a lot of the things on everything from uh, disability policy to LGBT policy to, you know, to bullying in schools. You talk to somebody who's 18 years old today um, and they don't understand things like, um, 
you know, a business that doesn't want to be ADA accessible so that a wheelchair can get in the door. Right. You know, somebody who complains about that or somebody who's talking about, yeah, no, uh, the dude in our class brought his boyfriend to prom. What's, why is that a news story? Right. You know, so they're growing up in this incredible, awesome world where, you know, you can hate the dude who brought his boyfriend to prom if he's a dick, right. you're not going to hate him because he's gay. Isn't it crazy that it, that it, I mean, well, I guess this does sound like a long time ago, but it's been about, I don't know, maybe 18 years since Ellen came out, and like, yeah. what a crazy deal that was at the time. Yeah. Like, a, a, a gay protagonist in a sitcom? What's, yeah. a, wh- what's America going to do with itself? Right. You know, like, a, right. the buildings are going to melt, and yeah. people's faces are going to blow up, and it was like... And then and it's just, like, so much a part of the culture now. It's so much, like, people don't care. It's like, yeah, they don't care, and audiences, for, for that, for, for, for ethnicity, for everything. I remember even starting, you know, starting out as an actor, and I, I'm, I, I know certainly if there are, you know, younger actors listening to this, they might be experiencing the same thing that I did 15, 20 years ago when I first started acting. I know that's the reality. But it's it, comparatively, I think, there's a difference between, you know, going into a meeting or an audition and somebody trying to make a conversation starter by saying, uh, where are you from? And they don't mean New Jersey. Right. They're, like, trying to have you drop something. Right. Um, versus, I, I did ask you that, to be fair. I did say, what's your background? Yeah, but you didn't, but you meant it in the context of the I did in the context of, yeah, okay, okay, I mean, okay, like, okay. like, I remember going to, you know, agent meetings, um, and I, there, was an, there was an agent I met with, who his icebreaker was, so where's the best Indian food in town? <laughs> but now that we're talking about it, we must it? know. Where it? Yeah. Or you go, so like, I can I tell you where the best sure, New Jersey like, food in town. Totally. I was like, I can tell you where the best Chinese food is or pizza. I like tacos, I'll tell you that. Um, so it was weird. It was just a weird, and he was, you know, he was old, and so I get it. But I feel like those, even those types of conversations are so much more rare now, where this poor guy was thinking that that's the best way to... Break the ice. There was another agent meeting I took where the the uh, the agent who is uh, an incredible agent brought the only three Indian Americans who worked at the entire company into the meeting, into the first meeting where the, where I was debating whether I wanted to sign with them. Uh, one was an assistant, one was a literary lawyer, uh, and one was just on the legal. Just team. told them from at the just far reaches, them, just so you could <sighs> nothing to do with representing actors. And I remember sitting at the table, going like. I'm not offended because I understand that you think, for some reason, that this is the most effective way to potentially appeal to a future client. But I just can't imagine a world in which my brain would operate that way. Like, I would sit there and go, okay, this guy likes comedy, and maybe we can sell him to a couple of TV shows of drama, too. Not... You know what's the lens through with which we're looking at ethnicity? Now this is this is a good seven eight years ago. I would be hard pressed to think that that would necessarily happen with as much frequency now. Which is not to say that that doesn't happen, but I think that the way that we look at how we put a cast together, or the way we look at um, what makes us more qualified to be actors, it's much more as, as you said, it's much more based in content than it was eight years ago. Now I think if you look at eight or eighteen years from now, we're going to look back at today and say. Gosh, there was so much obsession over race and ethnicity 18 years ago. You know, so so my point is, right. is it frustrating for actors who are just starting out now? Absolutely, and I'm not trying to undermine that, but I think it's still better than it was eight years ago. It'll be better eight years from now. Well, I don't. I mean, I, I just feel like you know, people have a natural. The, the people just want to chunk into groups. You yeah. know, like they just want to. Like I think a lot. I think humanity by and large does have an us and them disorder. So even if you were to 
turn everyone gray. Yeah. It would be like, oh, the ones with the disconnected earlobes are hanging out with the lobies again. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's like yeah. there there would be some type of a way that people would make a delineation so that we could like let's go over here. Okay, okay, we all in one group. Hey, fuck you guys over there. Like yeah. there's still you know I, I, there's still some there's still tribalism. There is tribalism, and there's always going to be a sense of belonging, and there's you know cultural specificity and everything like that. But but that that tribalism is not necessarily mutually exclusive to. Uh, storytelling sure. anymore, I think, and and I think it it certainly used to be, um, but it's decreasing with I think great frequency. Not only that, but you know, it, you know, even if uh, with VOD and Netflix and Amazon, I think studios can make movies that are that are more racially diverse yeah. and not have to use the excuse of like. Well, you know, there's just more white people in this country, so they're yeah. just going to go to theaters. Like, no, put it online then. Like, let totally. the audience find it. You yes. know, like you don't have to. You can't use that as an excuse anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and not even for not even for just for content. Period. Like, what does it look like to push the envelope or change the dynamic of of what mass media looks like? Uh, three of my uh, buddies I would hang out with after college. So one of them I went to UCLA with. The other one went to NYU with a high school friend of mine, just sort of randomly. Um, they, you know, we all graduated around the same time. We're all working these shitty jobs as runners and and uh, you know odd jobs and and all that. Um, and at night, these guys would all go back to their apartment and they would uh, they would write sketch comedy and they would shoot it on little DV cameras and upload it onto a website that they had created. Um, and they were doing this for years. And the website was called The Lonely Island. Mm-hmm. And so finally, <laughs> after years of doing this, you know, Andy Samberg, Akiva, Schaefer, Jorman Taconi, they all three of them get on SNL. You know, uh, Jorman Keeve as writers and Andy as a writer and actor, and they're they're doing the same digital shorts that they were doing for years. I used to watch, I used to go to the Channel One Hundred and One screenings. Exactly every week right. And see the Boo and that's like, right. Watch those guys. So all yeah. of that stuff, man. And and it it uh you know I remember seeing their precipitous climb when they started doing those digital shorts for SNL, and people would put them on YouTube, and then what was it? It was NBC Uni suing YouTube. For content, digital content rights, um, and it was the front page or one of the. I think it was it was either front page or a major story in the Wall Street Journal one week. Um, this is what a huge dork I am that I was actually reading the Wall Street Journal. But, <laughs> but I remember reading it and going, "Holy shit! This is a picture of you know Keith Andy and Yorma, and the entire article is about digital content and the rights of content creators versus the studios who own them." And I just thought this is, and this was entirely shaking up the whole business model of what it meant to be idiots like us who like to make funny things. And I just thought, how awesome is that? You know, and that's, so I think, to, to your point, it's not even just about things like tribalism as far as the way that we look, but it's even things like what jokes do we find funny and what right. jokes are people finding funny. And, and if a guy with a fancy MBA degree in a suit who has a stake in the game is going to sue some other fancy guy with an MBA and it's going to end up in the Wall Street Journal. How baller is that that this generation is completely <laughs> shifting the paradigm of what it means to be a producer or content creator? It's awesome. Uh, for a thing about putting your dick in a box. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's, Your Honor, if we exhibit A, yeah. uh, Justin Timberlake clearly right? places his penis in this box. Totally. So you're, you want that on your platform? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I feel like in a lot of these areas... It's it's stupid not to be more diverse. It's stupid not to allow a wider distribution of content yeah. and figuring out you know different way di- different models and different ways to monetize content rather than you know it's like this traditional media trying to 
take the the internet or the the web f- a- a- and and force it into this this archaic construct when you know I mean it's you know the, the internet is a crowdsourced platform yeah. and so people will only watch what they want to watch and they will only pass around things that they find compelling yeah. and it's not it's not a box that's just shooting stuff at them in one direction anymore and right. they don't know you know like traditional media does not know how the fuck to you could because yeah. you can't it's like trying to control the wind or it's like trying to it's like trying to train a swarm of bees like yeah. you can't you can put five things out and maybe they'll attack one of it but you don't. You just can't control it, and it freaks the shit out yeah, of them. Yeah, you can't control it. It also freaks them out because they still try to only. You know, if you're only offered three choices, you will choose the best of those three. The beautiful thing now is you've got content creators who are not just offering you those three choices. You've got networks and companies that are still only offering you limited choices. But what happens when people just are drawn to an ancillary choice that is not even on the platform that they're being offered? They right? just want it's good awesome. content. They don't right. give a shit. I think. I think. You know, people now in this age don't give a shit about as much where their content comes from. They just want the content that they want. Yeah. And it doesn't, they're not loyal specifically, you know, to a brand the way that they used to be. It's just like, oh, well, this thing is funny over here. I don't give a fuck where it came from or who made it, but I just know that I like that thing. Yes, absolutely. So do you want to talk a little bit about your show now <laughs> since we've, yeah, I made you yeah, talk sure. about a lot of other things? No, we got, we got, uh, <laughs> I feel like I distracted you with the uh, You did not UCLA distract. Thing. This was a good, this, 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 this was a nice, this podcast had a nice blending of a lot of different things and, and it makes me you should definitely come on more often i would love to because uh it's uh you you, you kind of you you raise the the, the fancy brain level of the podcast but it's 100 percent true to your your podcast you've got mm-hmm. some remarkably it's, intelligent people well it's you, you you've done an amazing job i just fake it really well i'm really an <laughs> idiot too. i just fake it's, it. i am too i am too i just I, I can i can scratch my chin and go interesting yeah when people think you're a stoner in real life the bar is so low that you just anything you say sounds brilliant it's amazing you even left the house today <laughs> right. you fed yourself your the buttons are all in the right slots on your shirt <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so the show. Yeah. Which for yeah, I, I don't know how many listeners I've retained. Um, so apologies. If no, I think people are going to hear about the show. Uh, so it's, it's called Battle Creek. Um, it is out on Sunday uh, Sunday nights at ten o'clock on CBS. Um, after I've just gotten done slamming the, uh, <laughs> the 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 big wigs in our industry. No, I, I, I was kidding. Obviously, uh, the show is. Um, what I liked about it, it's Vince Gilligan, who did Breaking Bad, and David Shore, my old boss on House. Oh, I'm for I'm, Create this. Here's a good segue, actually. Yeah. Vince wrote the script for our show 12 years ago. And in terms of us talking about, you know, decision makers in town and how things get greenlit, after the success of Breaking Bad, it seems that a lot of, you know, understandably, a lot of people around town said, Vince, why haven't you written anything else? Do you have anything else that we can buy? And he said, well, yeah, the stuff that you said no to 12 years ago. Here's a script <laughs> called Battle Creek that you guys all passed on. Uh, and so they, they passed on it 12 years ago. He kind of dusted it off, redeveloped it with David Shore, and, uh, and CBS bought it with a 13-episode pickup, which was, was awesome. Um, that obviously was nice nice cachet before I had read the script to know that. But then I'm, I'm reading these scripts during pilot season, and, and I'm thinking, all right, I know it's an hour-long procedural cop show, but it was also really funny. Um, which appealed to me because I'm like, wait a second. So this is a show where you don't have to, you know, you don't have to pick and choose that, you know. Of course, incredible dilemma if you're on a drama and you get to do comedic movies in your hiatus. But to have both in one script, I thought was awesome. So 
Um, I kind of broke the rules a little bit, and I, I just called David Shore directly, and I was like, hey, man. <laughs> so I know I'm, you know the agents are going to get mad that I didn't go through the process and all that, and I will go through the process, but I just want you to know that this is the best thing I've read all pilot season, and I would love to be part of it in any capacity, you know, if that's ever in the cards and, and blah, blah, blah. And you know, they were, of course, looking at first casting the two main detectives on the show before they got into There's a huge ensemble cast. Um, and now that I've been working at the White House, I have access to all your tax records. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Let's just talk about what yeah, we have. I mean, look, I sent him pictures of uh, what was on his cell phone and, and his bank records. <laughs> a minute said, before you uh, called. Right. You, yeah. <laughs> you could cast me or you couldn't. It's a, I mean, you know, listen, It's sometimes we have to make life choices. Yeah. yeah. You do or you don't. You yeah. don't have to necessarily yeah. put So your family good? Everything good? Right, yeah. <laughs> I have your dog. Yeah, and, he's fine. Yeah. He's fine for now. Uh, I'm so glad it worked out, though, because we. It, it's an awesome cast. It's uh, uh, Josh Dumel and mm-hmm. Dean Winters. Um, you know, Dean, a lot of people recognize him, obviously, from, from the, the Mayhem commercials, Allstate commercials, but, um, you know, crushed it on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and 30 Rock and, and uh, Oz. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that dichotomy of he and Josh is, is awesome. Uh, a woman named Janet McTeer, who's a two-time Oscar nominee, who plays our chief of police, which in terms of, uh, of cool casting decisions, my understanding that is that in the original draft of our show, that part was written for a man, uh, mm-hmm. the chief of police, and I don't remember exactly how it got to Janet, but she expressed interest, and of course David Shore, being the super creative genius that he is, was kind of thinking, absolutely, I cast things gender neutral, so why yeah. not? And it's not like uh, Vince Gilligan's going to go, hey, Cal, can you go home and put the turban on? Yeah, like, right. he's of never going to he say that. Classy, he's a classy, exactly. He's the best, he's like the best guy in the world. Absolutely. So... There's, there's, you know, that combination. Then you've got people like, um, you know, Patton Oswalt playing the mayor in a very Rob Ford-esque uh, character. <laughs> um, and it's a really cool cast. It's, you know, things like murders and car chases and gunfights that are taken very seriously. Um, but then there's there's so much so much ridiculousness, even in things like just the banality of police work. So you're doing four hours of uh, of paperwork, and what's that like? And how do you how do you bring that to life? And where are the jokes coming from? And there are a lot of subtleties. And I just I've been having a great time. I hope I hope we stay on the air for a while. Um, it's it's been a lot of fun. Well, you've had quite an interesting and and there's still and you still got a lot of life left. So you can do a lot of you can still go on to do a lot of fun things. You know, outside of I mean, having this dual, you know, I got my one leg in the politics, but then I got my other leg in, you know, but not just not just politics, but just like, I don't know, I, like that, that actually makes me hopeful about politics. Like, oh, you can approach it in a, from a human level. Yeah. Like, it doesn't just has to have to be us and them or yeah. all or nothing or like it can really be. Well, if you care about people, you just sort of research and you see what makes yeah. the most sense to you, and then you go and you try to help those people because ultimately, the, you want the world to continue and you want the world to be a better place. Yes, absolutely. And I think that exists. It's not something that you that people talk about a lot. Uh, you know, like I said, it, I don't think it makes great cable news TV, which is one of the reasons they don't talk about it. But you go to DC, especially if you're if you're a there's so many idealists on 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 every side of the aisle, frankly, and you've got you know you take the you take the most liberal and the most conservative senator, and their staffers, who are 22 years old, are absolutely banging each other on a Friday night. <laughs> they are meeting at bars. <laughs> they are banging each other, and they are waking up the next morning sometimes embarrassed that they've got to go to brunch together with a deeply conservative or deeply liberal group of friends. Mm-hmm. But these are the things that happen. You know, there's, there is the pomp and circumstance and the, the spectacle of politics, which is very different than the humanity of it. Would you ever host the White House Correspondents' Dinner? 
Do you think I am even remotely qualified to do that? You should host the White House. Oh no, 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 no! I think that I think that actually looks more terrifying than hosting the Oscars, which I think is probably the most thankless hosting job the in Oscars? the country. Yeah. The Oscars, but I think the White House Correspondents' Dinner is uh, that always. And I and I've seen people do an amazing job with it, and I'm always and and it always to me to get into a room full of politicians yeah. and make fun of them when, you know, some of them are fun, yeah. but the majority of them don't really seem like they want to have a good time, you know? It's a crazy, weird group of people. Have you ever have you ever been? No, and uh, Ariana Huffington invited me to go this year, yeah? and, I, and I have to perform that night in, oh, in, no. in another city, so I can't. Oh, no. So I, can't, I mean, it was already, the, the event was already, like, oh, I, I already man. sold tickets and everything, so okay. or, if I hadn't, I totally would have gone. Uh, you should you should try and swap with next year and just say, can you just confirm that I can go next year? I'll do that. You like I'll just totally I'll just go. find it's, out when it's going to be next year and not schedule a not schedule a stand up date. It's the it. weirdest thing to see. <laughs> I bet period. it is. Like it is the weirdest group of people <laughs> that you will ever see in your life, and you've got. You know, if you're there, there are some actors who just go because it's a cool, weird thing to go to. Then there are others who follow politics who are gawking at like a senator or right. a, or a member of cabinet or something, going, "Wow, that person looks a lot shorter, a lot taller than I thought." <laughs> like basically, what people do to us, right, right. as actors. Right. Then you've got all of these politicians who are dorking out over the weirdest celebrities. Like you really get a sense of they'll go up to random people and. Get, you know, can I get a selfie with you because my 16-year-old son really likes your movie? And I'm like, oh, okay. That's weird because I know your voting record on certain issues is really <laughs> abysmal. And I've brought joy to your child's life? That makes me a little conflicted but also very happy. Does he know your father? Does uh, he know his right. father's an episode? Does <laughs> yeah, he know yeah. his father's an episode? Right. So, uh, so there's a lot of... I mean, it's, it's just a weird, random, cool thing to see. Well, uh, Battle Creek, Sunday nights, 10 p.m., yeah. uh, CalPen. You're just CalPen on Twitter, am I correct? Yeah, at yeah. CalPen, K-A-L-P-E-N. And, uh, and c- come back. Come be on at midnight. Come, let, let, yeah. Let's do more fun stuff. I, I want to, absolutely. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here and coming out to fabulous uh, downtown Burbank. And uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. 